Welcome to Moving the Needle, a podcast of the American Association of Nurse Anesthesiology. I'm your host, Dr. Dina Valachi, president of the ANA. Thanks for tuning in. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. John DeCapa, the Chief Executive Officer of North American Partners of Anesthesia, known as NAPA, the leading anesthesia pain management and perioperative management company in the United States. I'm so excited to welcome Dr. DeCapa to the podcast, and thank you so much for joining me. I'd like to begin by inviting you to tell me a little bit about yourself. Dina, thank you very much for hosting this. It's really a pleasure to be on with you. I welcome the opportunity to share ideas that are affecting our specialty. From my perspective, I'm an anesthesiologist. I have been in Napa since I trained, both in cardiac anesthesia and pain management. I have held many different posts in the organization, including pain management doctor, clinician, clinical chair of our tertiary founding hospitals on Long Island as well as becoming a new academic chair at a brand new medical school, starting a residency and fellowships, and now as the CEO of the organization. I uh, am passionate about the opportunity to serve the people in our discipline, to use scale to, to help us all and figure out how we can protect that which we prize so much. Well, thank you for sharing that, because I agree with you. This is a great opportunity for all of us. So I know NAPA has a strong focus both internally and externally on health equity, which is a multifactorial problem impacting healthcare consumers and providers alike. Additionally, anesthesia services in the United States are undergoing a rapid transformation, pointing to substantial changes in anesthesia delivery and the need for anesthesia services. What are some of the greatest challenges in providing equitable healthcare to patients, and how can we together address and grow the need for anesthesia services? Dina, thank you for asking this question. It's a topic that is very near and dear to my heart. Being born in South America and having English second language, I have witnessed and experienced all kinds of challenges when accessing healthcare as an immigrant. And I can tell you that for me, the number one reason why I think we have to talk about this is we're obligated to serve the communities uh, in which we live and work. And sometimes the communities in which we live, they don't really look or feel like many of the clinicians that are serving those communities. And why is that important? I think cultural context is key. I'll share with you a concept where when I was born in South America, the concept of using curanderos or kind of, we'll call it things that are clearly not Western medicine type solutions, like using a sulfur rod to roll over painful areas to pull out the humors. Now, a lot of people listening may say, wow, that obviously doesn't work. Well, the point isn't whether you believe it or not. The point is whether your patients believe it. And if you talk into a patient, you make it very clear that you have no concept of where they're coming from. You create a barrier between you and them. And if you expect them to follow your, your advice and your guidance, they're unlikely to follow your suggestions if they believe that at its core that you don't understand where they're coming from. And so cultural context is really important. And we need to do a better job in healthcare at representing the providers to look and feel, at least from a percentage basis, with the communities in which they serve. And I think we've got a long way to go in, in doing that. And it's also about equity and access to this wonderful profession of healthcare for all. I mean, I was very fortunate. There was no way that I was going to be in medical school had it been for an individual that pulled me aside and mentored me. I consider myself lucky, but we shouldn't allow the American dream to depend upon luck. It should be the responsibility for 
anyone that has an interest and a passion to serve in the healthcare field to have equal access to be able to do that. Then you can get into representing the communities exactly the way those communities are made up. But so we got to start way, way, way back. And we could talk a little bit about what we're doing in order to help people who otherwise would be disadvantaged get into this field of healthcare. And I can agree with you totally as being a first generation Italian. It was by luck that I found my profession. It didn't happen overnight or that I knew. And you're right. It's it's an unknown thing. And unless you have somebody that taps you on the shoulder or pulls you through, and that's very, very prominent in, in our profession as CRNAs, it's usually the best kept secret. And we're trying very hard to get out there and get into those communities to say, hey, did you know about us? Do you know who we are, what we do? It's not just some quiet person in the background in the OR. So I can totally agree with you as far as getting that open to a wide variety of people. And of course, also, my grandmother had her things with uh, vinegar. So (laughs) if you didn't understand that, it's the same way. I wouldn't even begin to talk about whether some of those things worked or believe in them or not. That really isn't the point. The point is the people that you're treating can have some really deep ties to those customs. And you have to understand them and relate to them if you ever want them to connect with you and follow your advice. And I think we need to do a lot more about educating cultural sensitivities in the communities that we serve. I totally agree with you. The U.S. is unique among developing countries in that our rate of maternal mortality is increasing and the inequities in terms of quality of care are well documented. What are some of the steps that we can take to improve outcomes and patient satisfaction in that area? Well, it's absolutely true that we have a very expensive healthcare system and not the greatest of metrics to show for it. And I think that's a shame because for the amount of money that we're spending, we should really be doing much better on some very basic issues like we're talking about in terms of fetal mortality or prenatal care. I actually fear that we're going to be going in the wrong direction by changes that are occurring now. I mean, if you look at the government, Medicare is decreasing payments to providers, particularly subspecialty providers. And that is going to result, in my, in my opinion, in anesthesia. It's going to result in early retirements of people because we're already stretching our people to work harder because there's a labor shortage. When you're asking people to work harder for less, you're going to push some people into earlier retirement. And we don't have enough people to serve the communities in this country now. So I think that's going to lead to access problems. And it's probably going to be felt greatest in poor and rural communities because reimbursements into those communities is even more challenging because of insurance mix. So if you end up now decreasing payments overall, you're going to preferentially hurt those rural and poor communities. And without a doubt in this country, many, many poor communities have a very high percentage, an overrepresented percentage of Black and and Latinos. And so I think all of this is going to make access to or equitable access to healthcare even more difficult. But if we wanted to ask, how do we deal with providing better care in general, leaving aside the challenge that I just spoke about, I think that we spend a lot of time in this country looking for that magic bullet, when in reality, we should be thinking about best practices and standardizing care for all. There are clearly some things that we could all agree on in healthcare. Managing diabetes early and well 
saves a lot of problems, heart disease, amputations, loss of eyesight, kidney failure. But we do a horrible job at screening people for diabetes and treating for diabetes in a standard fashion, helping people pick healthy diets. These are low cost solutions that would have a tremendous impact on the greatest number of people. So I believe that what we should be doing is definitely deploying more of best practices across our populations, assuring that every member of the United States gets what we believe is standard of care. And I think we would in the end save money by doing that. In the operating room, we call that EROS programs or perioperative surgical homes. I mean, there are all kinds of different terms that we use for identifying best practices that we think everybody should have access to. So I think we should continue to do that. I'm seeing a little bit more attention now to standardized care. I think it happens when you have scaled entities. We in Napa believe very much that we're not a buy and hold entity. We believe in, in, in bringing groups in and coming together and figuring out what we want to deploy across our entire platform. So every year we have goals that we say, we're going to achieve this by the end of 2022. And many of those goals are those standards of care that we're kind of alluding to here. I can't agree with you more on preventative health and getting ahead of the game before they have the issues and how to prevent it. I, I completely agree. The other thing that I talk about is also reimbursement. There's so much inequity in reimbursement among providers. And even for CRNAs, we struggle a lot to get recognized in some states for QZ billing, which would help increase the ability to provide more areas for us to provide anesthesia. And even with the critical access hospitals, a lot of us are out there doing that in full time. So I think it's a multi-level problem, but no question preventative health care, getting in the beginning teaching that across the platform, how to eat healthy. Are we screening for those people? Because there's so much complacency. It's just you see, oh, it's diabetes, hypertension, and it just gets glossed over instead of sitting down and having that conversation with the patient of saying, hey, did you know that if you didn't control your sugar, you can have a bad outcome with surgery and wound healing and stuff? I don't know if we take that time, and I don't know if there's, there's enough time given in the day for each provider, especially like for the surgeon to sit down, he's talking about the surgical procedure, and then him trying to talk about that other piece of it, it's a pylon. But if we all came together and did it, and the patient heard it over and over from all the different providers, it would stick, right? You have to hear something seven times before it sticks. So if we were all on the same page saying the same thing to the patient, maybe we can see that change happen in the population. The anesthesia delivery profession continues to face an ongoing shortage of providers. According to the ANA study to understand job satisfaction among CRNAs on a deeper level, an overwhelming majority of CRNAs, 89%, were either very satisfied or somewhat satisfied with their current job. The study also found that CRNAs practicing independently are more likely to be very satisfied with their job. We know a shortage of providers, in particular nurses, has a negative impact on care delivery and consumer access to care. In light of this, how is NAPA advocating for clinicians across the board? There are a lot of things that are, that are really kind of headwinds in our discipline, the very first of which is supply-demand challenges. And what that leads to is people who are very connected to the communities, they do their very best, meaning they work harder than necessarily want to, and that leads to burnout. And we saw that, particularly during the pandemic, people were just retiring early. And that's a problem. People are leaving their profession, not because they necessarily want to, but because they just can't commit that much time and take away from their families and their other interests as much as they were asking them to. That problem is going to continue to get worse. The other major problem affecting our specialty that's causing a lot of people to be dissatisfied is this decrease in reimbursement. I already talked before about Medicare cutting 
cutting reimbursement to our profession. But you also have things like the No Surprise Act, which at a very high level is wonderful because I don't think any patient should get surprised with a bill, particularly after an emergency situation. So I'm a big fan of protecting patients of these kinds of high bill surprises. But that's really not what the No Surprise Act is all about. It's really just an interesting way to get through the political system and attempt to to increase the leverage of the commercial payers to decrease reimbursement or bring down the median for people in our profession. Now, when you do that, you start to push the cost of our profession to hospitals and ASCs because we can't bring in enough revenue by our direct billings, no matter what kind of billing you do. And that leads to dissatisfaction, that leads to more burnout, leads to early retirement, and it leads to an increased turnover in our industry because hospitals that are being asked or ambulatory surgery centers, facilities in general, that are being asked to take on a larger portion of the cost of providing anesthesia services are naturally going to start to say, maybe I should check for some other solution. And when they start to say, let me put out an RFP, that means we're going to have a higher turnover in our industry. And I don't think that's healthy for our patients or our providers because anesthesia is a specialty that really relies on us getting to know our surgeons, our perioperative teams, our communities. And the minute we start having people become like a revolving door in order to keep the cost down, We lose all of those things that I think protect our patients and create the safety envelope that we've learned to do in our profession. So simple things like I know where the workroom is and during a crisis, I can get equipment really easily or I have faith in that particular surgeon or in the ICU. When you develop that over years, so I think what's happening in our profession is we have these external forces that are gonna create bigger challenges for our providers. And that's gonna cause more dissatisfaction It's going to cause more burnout, more early retirements, and that all has negative connotations for the people that we serve. So I think it's a big, big issue. It's a topic that I think every provider in anesthesia, no matter where your training comes from, can rally around. It's an area that I also think really takes advantage of scale, because when you're fighting things like the No Surprise Act, and we were supporters of the legislation down in Texas, the court action in Texas, to fight those actions. And I'm very happy to say that uh, Texas Medical Association did prevail and that the No Surprise Act for at least the IDR process was changed in our favor. It's much fairer than the one that the HHS committed. So I think that when you have scale and you use scale, you can have a material impact of protecting and advocating for our profession. So I think I think you're right. There's it's people go into anesthesia and under perfect circumstances, we're all very happy with our professional choice. But when you get these external forces that are starting to really challenge our people, at some point, people are just saying, I think I'm done. And that's that's a real crime. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Again, the No Surprise Act was great on a you know, higher level of thinking. But really, we ended up, in my humble opinion, we gave a lot of power back to the private payers. And that causes so much disruption for us and for us to provide. And the continuity of care, there's no question. That's, there's tons and tons of studies that talk about when you have the same providers and everybody gets to know each other, that's how you actually decrease having any kind of sentinel events because everybody knows each other's work patterns very well. So you speak very well to that. And I, I humbly agree. I think I, you definitely see those changes happen when you go to places that have been flipped over tons of times. And there's a lot more to work on that. No question. Research shows that unconscious bias has a measurable impact on clinical outcomes as well as patient and family satisfaction. What have you done at Napa to address unconscious bias? Yeah, I think the first thing that you have to do 
no matter what profession you're in, if you're just a citizen of the United States, is you have to reflect on yourself and recognize that we all have biases by the way that we're brought up and the experiences that we've, you know, that have formed us. It's just natural. That's not bad. Okay. People tend to get a little bit crazy about, oh, you're, you have a bias. I think we, we can't help but be biased just by the influence of the TV shows that we watch or the communities around us, our families and friends and how they behave. I think what you have to do is you have to first recognize that everyone else has it and to deal with kind of diversity issues and equity issues, you have to make it a focus. You have to actually work at it. You can't just say, well, I'm going to just do better. You actually have to do way more than that. In order to overcome unconscious bias, you have to actually purposely do things differently than you otherwise would do because that's the nature of having an unconscious bias. You don't even know that it's affecting you. So you, we at Napa recognize that. And, and so what do we do in terms of actionable items? So first, we actually created a division of uh, DEI division. So we have hired a professional with two decades of experience. Her name is Tisha Nesbitt. She is the expert that is tasked every single day with uncovering our biases, trying to educate our people, put in place programs that can move us along into a healthier lifestyle. And so I'm very happy that we've now developed the size and scale in Napa to be able to invest in that. And I'm very, very happy about that. Because it, like I said, that is a measurable, active process, not just I'm going to try and do better. The other thing we do is we've increased opportunities for diversity talent to become, in this case, the program CRNAs. Because I think that the challenges we all have as employers is we're not training enough people. We're not graduating enough people who come from black or Hispanic or you name whatever the minority program is. We just aren't graduating enough of those people. And as employers, we're all struggling to bring in the same people. And so we have to increase the pool of people that get into our training program. And so we partnered with Case Western Reserve, which has the Leadership Excel and Achieve program. And we're helping them to take minorities that couldn't get into their CRNA program the first time out. And we take those people and we give them a one-year boot camp to get them ready to be able to excel in those programs. And as long as they pass that one year, they're automatically accepted into the Case Western program. And so we're putting in resources to help people that otherwise would never get a chance now have a chance. That's what I like. I like doing that. I actually think we as a society should be going further back into high school to get people better prepared to deal with undergraduates to then be able to compete for those advanced training programs. And so I really like this program. It's something that I tasked Tisha to find, and I'm glad that Case Western did that. We're also creating partnerships with SRNA programs to be open for educating people. And we're very aggressive at trying to develop research relationships with training programs. We're aggressive at opening up our clinical material because we have over 504 facilities. We do a tremendous amount of pediatric work, cardiac work, intracranial work, which are very often very hard for training programs to find. And we make those available because we have a lot of people that want to help educate. And, and I think the more that we can give people ex healthy experiences and training, the better prepared they are to then go out into the communities and practice practice in our profession. We're a sponsor of the Diversity CRNA, which is uh, the Diversity in Nurse Anesthesia Mentorship Program. 
we signed the CEO pledge, the action pledge. That's a, it's, a, it's the only pledge throughout the world where CEOs openly say, I'm committing my organization to follow a healthier path and do certain things in order to educate people about diversity and equity issues and to make measurable steps to help us rectify these injustices, really. And so, and then we focus on creating the right work environment for everybody whether it be gender or be age or whether it be race or religion. We have engagement programs that ask our clinicians, how well are we doing? And we take that information very seriously and we work on them. We have a whole team of people that we call the culture development team that uses that feedback from our providers to go ahead and say, this is what they're saying is really good. And this is what they're saying we need to improve because if you really want to start to attract people of all different races, and, and genders and truly embrace DEI, you have to first fix your work environment to welcome everybody. And so I'm actually, I feel better today than when I first went into medicine, because I think we're all talking the same language to try and do better. I can't agree more. And thank you so much for supporting Dr. Sonia Moore, who actually started the LEAP program at Case Western, good friend of mine as well. And so, and, and I'm part of that program too. I think it's a fabulous thing. And, and I agree, you got to get out there and, and get the people in for sure. One of my other questions I have for you, what are some of the benefits to fostering a diverse and inclusive clinical workforce? Well, I think that the first one is the way we started this conversation is the when you have a more diverse workforce, you can better relate to the communities that you serve. So for example, if somebody were to serve a, if we had a, a contract to serve a very high Latin immigrant population, okay, kind of where I grew up and where my family still resides, I could be the source of information about what, what's that culture about? What, do you, what are these, these beliefs that people hold and what do they mean? And how do, should you address them? How do people in the Latin community seek healthcare? What's their preferred mode of doing it? And if you have a diverse group of people, you have internally experts that can then share that knowledge with the rest of the organization, as opposed to saying we're all born and raised in the same community and we really don't have those experiences. How are you ever going to explain to someone else what going to work in a heavy Latin or a heavy Italian or a heavy Asian community might feel like? So I think it, it allows us to serve our communities better. I think it also, I think today, People are demanding this. So if you really want to attract all people to your company, everyone's looking to see, are you really embracing this? Because those old norms, frankly, we don't agree with those. And we need to see change. So people, if you want to enhance recruitment and retention in general, you have to embrace these ideals because people are saying, I want to see something different. Okay. I mean, you don't need to be a black family to put Black Lives Matter poster in front of your house, right? Everybody's expecting those kinds of things. And so I think it shows a truly responsible organization to everybody. And that enhances recruitment and retention. And I think you have to have, I believe that when you're a company that gets to a scale that we've got, where we have over 6,000 clinicians and we're serving 20 states, 3.2 million patients a year, I think you develop a an ethical responsibility to, to start because you're a national company at this point and you have a responsibility because if it's not you leading this change, if it's not us making these investments, then who else is going to in the field of anesthesia? So I think we also recognize that if you're going to be the largest and, and the leader in our specialty, then you have to take on these responsibilities and we welcome it. So I think where it creates pride in the organization, I think it creates a sense of 
responsibility, which goes into many other areas, not just DEI initiatives, but also green issues and disposable things that we use in the operating room. We're tackling that issue because we want to protect our planet. There's all kinds of things that, that get really exciting when you get to a certain scale. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think one of the most exciting places I ever worked was as a surgery center in Queens. And it depended on who the surgeon was, which patients would show up that day. So if the surgeon was Greek, all the Greek families would come in. If it was Chinese, it was Chinese. If it was Russian, it was Russian. And so I didn't know what language I was speaking for the day, which I loved that diversity. It was a lot of fun to work in that kind of environment. It made it fun. I enjoyed it. So it's a lot of fun. What can companies do to increase healthcare provider workforce diversity? In particular, what NAPA is doing to increase workforce diversity? Which I think you spoke a little bit to that with the LEAP. I think you have to first, if you really want to do the, the, the most effective, long-lasting impact, then you have to get people more interested and, and support them early in their education. So I, for example, have taught in high school to introduce healthcare to high school students to get them motivated and excited. Otherwise, they might never even think about healthcare as a profession because no one in their community or in their family is from healthcare because no one ever graduated college. And so I think you gotta go deep really far back, all right? Like I told you in my, in my life, I never would have gone into the field of medicine if it weren't for a few people that just went out of their way to tell me that I could, to, show me how I could, support me, give me confidence. And then, you know, it was actually a Jewish high school English teacher who, when I was talking to her, and I was never really a good English student, I apologized to her many times, Miss Rosenberg. And, and I told her, I said, I know I'm not your best student. You know, it's not my thing. But she said, you know what? I know you can do a lot of great things. And I want to introduce you to my son who goes to a program at City College, which is in Harlem, New York. And it only costs $1,000 a year. And I think you'd be perfect for it. And if it wasn't for that, I never would have been able to go into medical schools. We couldn't afford it. And those were mentors in my life. They would not have happened otherwise. I never would be where I am if it weren't people stepping out of their way and saying, let me do something nice for you. I think we have to do the same thing because we're blessed to be in the profession that we're in. I love what we do every day. It's just so rewarding to be able to take somebody from pre-surgery to after surgery and see the impact that you've made during that very short period of time and how their lives are just so much better for so many people. And I want to see everybody get that benefit. And how do we do it? Go back into those communities early on in education, get people to understand what it is that anesthesia is what's possible, what do you have to do to prepare yourself for college and then further beyond college. And then like we're doing with the Case Western program, take people who maybe kind of got the short end of the educational stick and say, I'm willing to give you a little bit more mentoring and, and then give you a second shot. Mm-hmm. And if you can meet the requirements at that point, you know what, we'd love to have you as an anesthesia provider. I think that's phenomenal, actually, because <laughs> the same thing, it shouldn't be serendipitous by who comes through your path of how you get somewhere. It should be those opportunities should be hardwired and those systems of giving people confidence and education and pushing people forward. They should be there and they're not. It really takes people like you or I who go back out and say, I believe in you. I think you can do it. And here's how. Thank goodness for those people, because neither I think you or I would be here today. 
I agree. It needs to be hardwired. How else are we going to get any better if we don't or get it more consistent for sure? I really want to thank you as my guest today, Dr. DeCapua, for sharing your insights, especially your personal stories on this important topic. Thank you very much, Gina. So I just want to say to everybody, please join us next time for another episode of Moving the Needle. Thanks for listening. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, like and subscribe, tell your friends, come back soon and be sure to visit ANA.com. Thanks again.